guys, this is Tom from the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We wanted to take a moment to let you guys know that we have started working on season four. We're super excited about it and we're hoping to get that content out to you as soon as possible. But in the meantime, we hope that these past sessions from our Philly Young Adults Conference are a blessing to you. And as always, if you're located in the greater Philadelphia area, we'd love to extend an invitation out to you to come to our in-person gathering where we study the Bible and worship the Lord together. You can go to phillyyoungadults.com for more information about all these things. Thanks, guys, and be talking to you soon. All right, this is perhaps the most important one we're talking about right now, arriving at a correct interpretation. It's actually not always possible to arrive at a correct interpretation, but I want to make it a little bit more likely that you will arrive at a correct interpretation. Obviously, we need humility as we're talking about this because you can do a lot of work and still end up at the wrong interpretation. Now, thankfully, the core concepts of Scripture are easy, right? They're, they're plain. There's something that we can understand and believe and live out. But there are certain passages where we're like, what did, the, what did the author mean when he was saying that? All right, and so we're going to talk about What's the correct method of interpreting scriptures? And so the correct method is, is normally called the historical grammatical method or the literal method, you could say. It makes room for figures of speech, but it honors the history. You want to know what did the author intend consciously to communicate to the original audience. You have to know that. So you need to know what's going on in Corinth or in Philippi or in Israel and how they would have understood it if it was written to them in just the normal, customary way in which we talk, speak, and, and read. We don't make up bonus rules for the Bible that help us to twist it into some power-hungry religion. When we talk about interpreting the Scriptures, we just use the normal rules for speaking, writing, and communicating. They're universal rules. And so you want to presume the literal, the literal intent of the Scriptures unless they force you to think figuratively. That's a longer conversation, but if all, all of a sudden you're reading and, and what is said in the passage, if taken literally, would be a sin or it would be impossible, like when Jesus says to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're like, well, it would be a sin to be a cannibal. So he's probably talking in a figurative sense, not literally, and so he would take it in that type of a way, right? And so it's just the normal way that we speak uh, in our culture, in any, in any culture, right? But interpretation can be difficult. We mentioned this a bit during the Q&A. We need to realize that there is only ever one correct interpretation, and it's been the same for the last two to 4,000 years, right? So um, we might not arrive there, but the goal would be that over the last few thousand years of church history, that everyone is arriving at the same interpretation for certain passages. Why is that the goal? Because Paul, James, and the writers, they obviously had one intended message they were trying to communicate, and so they would hope that everyone throughout the centuries would understand what that one message is. And so it would be wrong to do a small group ministry and say, here's the passage, let's all go around and share what does it mean to you? Now, that might just be semantics. It might just be a way of talking about application, not interpretation. But the goal should be, hey, let's wrestle with this and figure out what does it mean? What did the author try and communicate? And if there are differences of opinions, the leader should say something along the lines of, well, both of those answers can't be right. Let's study it and try and figure it out. You know, but both opposite answers can't be right about a passage because it's not subjective, right? It's, you know, Second Peter 1.20 says that, 
no scripture, prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It's not for each person in the group, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't confused about it. There was one message that was historical in that moment. So you look at the historical part of it, and then the grammatical, the words that were chosen were inspired by God to help us understand what was meant. So it's wrong to look at the Bible in a subjective way, the way you would if you went to an art gallery and you're looking at a weird painting and you're like, well, to me it means this, to me it means this. Everyone can be right if you're looking at a real weird painting like that. When you're looking at the Bible, we can't be subjective. We have to say, what is the objective truth that was supposed to be communicated? It's true when people say, oh, people can make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean. It's true that people attempt to do that, but it doesn't mean they're right, right? If you disregard all the normal laws for understanding and communication, you can do that. Otherwise, the author is trying his hardest to figure out to how to communicate the most clear way about these things. Now, sometimes when you're trying to look at a passage, you, you could look at it and say, you know, it, it could mean A or it could mean B. Neither of those seem heretical. Both of them seem like they fit with an orthodox Christianity. So then how do, I, how do I choose if one pastor says this, another pastor says this, one person, another person? How do you figure it out? I, I would say start with what is the simplest and easiest reading of the passage and start there with the idea that God isn't trying to confuse us and he was trying to convey things in, in the easiest to understand ways. That won't always help you, but sometimes it does. If one idea is super creative but still fits within orthodoxy and the other one's just real simple, you're like, oh, maybe it's the simple one. That's one kind of tool you could use. But here are the steps of interpretation. First, you want to make sure you're meditating on the passage. Read it a bunch, right? Read it, read it a lot. Read it in, in context there. And you want to ask some questions that will help you to make sure you're thinking in the right way about the passage. And so these are questions that are on your worksheet as well. And we'll try and go through an example towards the, towards the end. But here's what Martin Luther said about meditating. In your study of the Bible, you should meditate. That is not only with your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and the literal words of the book, reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection and so that you could see what the Holy Spirit means by them. And take care that you do not grow weary or think you have done enough when you have read, heard, or spoken them once or twice, that you would have complete understanding. You're never going to be a particularly good theologian if you do that. You'll be like untimely fruit which falls to the ground before it is half ripe. You need to spend a lot of time with this, right? It can't be something that you just rush through in the morning. It might take a few hours on a, on a Saturday to work through it to spend enough time meditating on the passage. Thomas Manton said, the word feeds meditation, meditation feeds prayer, and we, we must hear that we might not be erroneous. Meditation must follow hearing and precede prayer. To hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. We may hear and hear, but it's like putting a thing into a bag with holes. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and we let out by prayer, right? And so he says, men are bar barren, dry, and sapless in their prayer for want of exercising themselves in holy thoughts. And so maybe you never thought of your prayer life may feel dry. Or I don't really know how to pray well. It could be that we're not meditating on the scriptures enough. We're just reading them, but not slowing down and really chewing on them. So here are some of those questions that can help you get in the right ballpark for if you are uh, on the right track with the interpretation. First, you want to make sure that you're noticing any cultural differences, right? We're talking about uh, 2,000 plus years of distance, and think about how much has changed in the last couple decades, right? A different language and a different culture, not a Western culture, but an Eastern culture. 
it's obviously going to be a wildly different culture in Bible times than it is in here, and so you need to know that. And so good resources would be the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary. It's a great commentary because it only focuses on background information that you probably don't know. So when Jesus says, like, uh, don't pray like the heathens do, pray like this, it's going to tell you how the heathens prayed in that time period because that's what people would understand in that culture, even though we've lost that in our culture. So it's a good reference, the IVP Bible Background Commentary, and there's other good books as well. You need to pause and make sure you should be taking the passage literally or looking at it figuratively like we've talked about. And so you start with the normal literal sense unless it makes no sense when you kind of spell it out literally. Um, and then you might have to look at it in a figurative sense and say, is this, a, is this a figure of speech that I'm looking at? And then it's important to recognize the genre of the scripture <coughs> that, you're, that you're reading. And so if you're reading an epistle, epistles have a, a strong structure, you know, greeting, thanksgiving, and, and you can compare the epistle you're reading to other epistles, and you might notice some things. And so um, the thanksgiving section may be missing. And you wonder, why, aren't they, why isn't there a Thanksgiving section in here? Well, it's, you know, in, in Galatians, it's because the, the gospel is being corrupted, so there's nothing to be thankful for. Um, but in 1 Corinthians, there's still a Thanksgiving section, even though there's some, like, pretty messed up um, sexual mistakes going on in the church, but there's still something to be thankful for in the church because the worst thing is actually the gospel being corrupted. And so you look at the different um, books, and you can compare them, and each category of genre literature can be understood in different ways. Historical narratives, which is 60% of the Bible, you want to look at that and be observing, say, what, what's descriptive versus prescriptive? And you don't want to be pulling doctrine out of historical narratives unless you're in the subcategory of the Gospels, um, where if Jesus is living it out, you can build some doctrine off of those things. So look at the genre that you're in. If you're in a parable, recognize that you're in crazy, uncharted territory. People get parables wrong all the time. Uh, in my book, I think I got a parable wrong in my interpretation. Uh, one of the guys reviewing it told me, I think it means the opposite. I'm like, no. <laughs> but you look at it, and it really, it really seems like it could be, it could be either. Right? Are we, are we the treasure in the field, or is Jesus the treasure in the field? In the parable, you're like, I don't, I don't know. Both sound really cool. Um, so you want to be careful in those. Lots of genre-based wisdom you can have, but that's a different book. And then you want to read and reread the passage to make sure you really understand it. So that's some basic background stuff that you do. And then you have to land on an interpretation. So you have to restate the verse as like a truth statement or a principle, this is what I think the author intended to the original audience, right? So you have to rewrite it in different words and probably elaborate a little bit to make sure that you understand what is going on in the author's mind there, all right? And so you want to make sure you can answer the question, what is the meaning of the passage that you are studying, right? What is, what is the meaning? What does this actually mean? Leave application out of it. So anytime you're in the Old Testament and you're tempted to say, Christians should, nope, has nothing to do with Christians yet. The interpretation is the historical meaning that was intended by the author. So you leave application out of it. You focus on what was happening in that passage. I think it's healthy, after you've come up with what you think the correct interpretation is, to pause and say, what are some other interpretations that could be right also? This is actually really difficult to do, but you have to pause and say, okay, I think it means this. If I were someone else, could it mean something else? So if I, was, um, if I was in a different denomination, how would I read this passage? If I was a new believer, if I, if I, believe, <coughs> excuse me, if I believe this or that. So you look at your interpretation and you say, could it, could it mean the opposite? Could it mean something slightly different? And you write out a couple alternate 
interpretations, and that might just strengthen you in what you originally believed, or it could get you thinking about, like, maybe I'm not so confident in what this verse means there. All right, we'll go through an example um, for all of these, but whatever the most likely interpretation is, say you've written out two or three possible interpretations for a passage, you just kind of circle that one and focus on it, and that's just the beginning. You've already done a lot of work, but that's just the beginning. That's you saying, based on what I've read and these background questions that I've asked, I think this is what the author consciously intended to the original audience. You write that down. Now you have to check yourself, right? Because that's, that's a good thought that you have, but running it through a checklist of some questions can help clarify or change your mind on the interpretation. So let me give you nine questions that can check you on your interpretation. I think the most important one is the one that I've repeated a few times so far just a couple seconds ago about the conscious thought of the author. You have to think that because it gets you out of the modern world and makes you think back to the time. If I was actually sitting in Colossae and, and I got this letter, what would I think it meant according to the, how it's all written? Make sure you're really thinking like that. Also, does the context support your interpretation? So you might be focused in on, laser focused on one verse. Here you pause and you, and you read like a paragraph behind the verse and you say, okay, does this paragraph build up and support what I'm saying? And you start, yeah, yes or no, you know, and then, then you read a paragraph or so after the verse and say, does this logical argument flow in a way where my interpretation fits before and after based on the context? And sometimes you look at the context and you're like, that's actually talking about something completely different here. But that, that context is king, they say. So it's really the most important tool you have in Bible study is your context. Third, does another translation help you to better understand the passage? The cool thing with English is that there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of great translations. The nice thing about a translation is that there's usually a committee of up to, you know, 70 or 100-something people that are focusing on a translation. These are largely Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people that are conservative, that they're not trying to mess you up. They honestly think language changes so much that they want to create these new translations to make it as accurate as possible for how we use words now, whether it's a thought-for-thought or a word-for-word translation. The cool thing is, is these people have all the original language skills that you may lack. And so when you read a different version of the English, you can say, wow, somebody was looking at the original language and really thought it should be written differently like this. Let me, let me explore that for a little bit. So I would pull up five, ten different translations um, and look at it and keep comparing it to the translation that you always use and see as I look at these different translations, does it cause me to think differently about my passage? So the easiest to read translations are the thought-for-thought thought ones like NLT, um, and then a middle, middle tr- road translation is like NIV. Those ones will definitely say it differently than a word-for-word word translation like New King James, NASB, ESV, and, and those ones. So you want to look at all of them and say, does this help? It's almost like looking at a commentary, especially for the thought-for-thought thought ones, because they have to interpret a little bit to get to a paraphrase or a thought-for-thought um, when they're writing it out. So that's a really helpful thing. So you look at the translation and then write down some notes about how it's causing you to think differently or affirming what you believe. Next, you want to look at cross-references to see if your view is supported elsewhere in Scripture. It definitely shouldn't contradict anything else in the Bible, right, like we, like we saw in the Apocrypha. It shouldn't contradict anything else, um, and it may support it. Right? Sometimes, especially if it's an author that's written a lot in scriptures, he may say a similar concept in a different way, in a different passage, and it can help you to understand it. And so, 
looking up cross-references in a paper concordance uh, or cross-reference tool would be the best way uh, to do it. You can also go on to different, all the websites, Blue Letter Bible, Bible Gateway, if you have Logos Bible Study software. They make this easy. Biblehub.com, if you're pulling up a single verse, will give you cross-references for almost every phrase in the verse using the treasury of Scripture knowledge, and so that can be really helpful. You look at the cross-references, and then you answer the question, does this change my view or support my view? A.T. Pearson said, partial examination will result in partial views of truth, which are necessarily imperfect. Only careful comparison will show the complete mind of God. And Thomas Watson said, nothing can cut the diamond but the diamond. Nothing can interpret Scripture but Scripture. And why not? A third Puritan writer said, compare Scripture with Scripture because false doctrines, like false witnesses, agree not among themselves. So that's... Cross-referencing is like your safety net, like a trapeze artist with a safety net. This is making sure you're staying in bounds, right? So, um, fifth, did you look for Jesus and God's plan of redemption as you were studying this, right? That's, that's like the point of the Bible, is that we're a mess and God is intervening to save us. And so, it could be really obvious. You could be studying an epistle that's mentioning Jesus or something, but in certain parts of the scripture, this is an important question to ask, saying, am I separating this completely from God's plan of redemption and making it just like a moralism kind of a thing? How am I connecting this back to the gospel? This question might not always help, but when it does, it can really save you from, from being legalistic or moralistic in your, in your approach. And so um, all of the Bible is about this redemption plan, and so connect it to that story. Six, did you look up any important keywords in the original language? This is something we have the benefit of doing, even using completely English study tools. And so you want to find keywords or repeated words or really important words. I find that they all sound like French words. Justification, you know, propitiation, glorification. If it sounds French, it's likely, oh, that's an important word. That sounds like an ooh-la-la word. I'm going to write that down and look it up. Uh, that the easiest place to look it up is Blue Letter Bible. I've got Logos and all that stuff, but if you go to Blue Letter Bible, type in the verse, click on tools, it instantly puts all the words vertical. Next to it, it will give you the transliteration, which is using the English letters. It will spell out how it should sound, and it'll give you the Strong's reference number. The, it'll either have G plus four numbers or H plus four numbers for Greek or Hebrew, and then you just click on that number, click on biblical usage, you know, in the scriptures, and it will pull up simple definitions based on uh, what that word was used in the original language. And, um, and you just look up a couple of the key original language words. Word studies are complex, and they can be confusing, and, and you can honestly easily make mistakes with word studies, um, which is why um, some people choose to pursue original language studies. But there are good English tools that you can use that can help you um, discover certain things. Seven, does your interpretation fit within historically accepted Christianity, right? So orthodoxy. So if your interpretation, you're like, yeah, I think this verse just means Jesus actually isn't God. Well, that's just not true. You got to go back to the drawing board, right? It's never going to mean that. And so you can discover historical Christianity by um, reading some, some creeds that are accepted by everyone, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, things like that. Or as you're talking with people about it, and they're like, that sounds heretical. Um, you just want to make sure that you're in bounds. This shouldn't be new information that you're discovering, but historically accepted information. And then eight, list some strengths and weaknesses about your interpretation now that you've been studying it. Just to be honest and say, is my interpretation 
heading in the right direction? Or is it starting to feel weaker, <coughs> excuse me, and weaker? And list those down. And then the last question, did you, did you check your interpretation in a few commentaries? Now, this is the last question because you want to have soul-nourishing fun when you are studying the Scriptures. And if your only version of studying the Scriptures is read the Scriptures and then read a commentary, you're missing out on all the fun. I mean, this is the, the nourishment really comes from self-discovery as you work through the Scriptures. We praise God for commentators and pastors, and we enjoy it when they tell us information. But as we want to be Bereans ourselves and studying the Scripture as well, we recognize this is an important tool, but it's the last tool because you want to form your own opinions before you read somebody else's opinion. Very important. Whether it's studying the Bible or preaching, form your own opinions. And then after you form your opinion, you're all excited. This is amazing. And you read 10 commentaries and everyone else is saying the opposite. You just kind of laugh at yourself and say, well... I'll get better at this. It's likely the 10 interpretations heading in the opposite direction of mine that are correct, but at least you're learning how to study the scriptures. And so you check some commentaries and make some notes about whether, again, you feel strengthened in your interpretation or weakened in it. That's a lot of work to do. When you're all done, you've likely fine-tuned your interpretation or changed it. If you feel like you're completely wrong, then go back to your two to three alternate interpretations, pick one of them, and run it through the nine questions. Or as you're going through the process, most likely you're discovering the truth. And so you want to rewrite your final interpretation um, based on what you've learned. And so this is, it's not copying out of a commentary. Based on everything you've learned, you rewrite what you think it means now um, after all of that research. Still not done, right? Now you discuss it with another believer because you put a ton of work into this. And so you bring it to other people and say, I've done a lot of work on this verse. I really want to know what it means. What do you think? And they might ask you some questions. How'd you get here? Oh, the context or the original word. And uh, you can sort that out with them and, and talk about it. Um, and again, you don't have to always go to a pastor or an elder because the Holy Spirit is, is in all of us, right? And so you want to go to someone that loves the word, um, you know, that knows the word that you can discuss it with and be humble in that process, right? You, it's okay to have a blind spot in this. At least you have the maturity to talk about it with someone else to identify the blind spot, not get defensive, but receive that input and go back to the drawing board. But we're not done, right? The last thing you do is decide how confident you are. I think this is an important step. At the very end of all your research, you've rewritten what you think is the correct interpretation. Then, then write down, this is the percentage chance I think I am of accuracy. And so you, the whole process might have been confusing. You're like, you know, I'm like 45% sure this is right. And that's a cool thing to do because there may be certain interpretations that you have that you're like, I'm just as confused. Well, those are good ones to research further, talk about with people further. And then there's certain interpretations you look at it, you're like, I'm like 99% sure this verse is saying Jesus is God and deserves worship. You're like, okay, yeah, that's good. But if you're 100% sure on everything, you just have pride issues, Right? I mean, you, there's no way we can be 100% sure on everything in the Bible. On the core things in the Bible, yeah, of course we can be. But if, you're, if you look at the book of Revelation and you're like, 100% sure, this is what it means. Okay, well, you're the only person. Everyone else is confused. Everyone, even people that are like, I only preach, you know, this view of Revelation. When they're that confident about it, they're still probably, if they're honest, only 95% sure that's the right truth. How do I know that? Because we all respect brilliant theologians, pastors, and scholars that are on different sides of the debate, right? And so I, I can think of 10 scholars that are amillennialists that I would say read everything about the, that they write except for their views on eschatology. And you're like, well, man, if I like everything else they do, then there's a chance they're right. 
And then I can think of 10 scholars that believe in a premillennial view, and, and I might disagree with them on how they um, interpret on the Holy Spirit if they're continuationist or not. So all I'm saying is that it, it's, it's really foolhardy to think that you can be 100% sure on everything in the Scriptures. Be humble. If somebody says, let me show you a different view, but I'm going to point my finger at the Scriptures as we have the conversation, you should be willing to have that conversation, right? If they're pointing their finger at the Scriptures, right? And so don't be dogmatic where the Bible isn't. Now, if you want to develop these skills, there's a few things you can do. First, read the Bible all the way through and do that multiple times so that you can start connecting Scripture with Scripture. And then you want to listen to and download um, faithful preachers. Now, faithful preachers aren't always the most dynamic, charismatic, and exciting preachers, all right? It, it, it should be, we should develop the maturity to listen to a preacher who we think, man, they are just a good expositor. They're just a little boring. Okay, but if they're a good expositor, isn't that more important than being amped up, right, knowing the truth? And so check your heart on that. Do you only like celebrity preachers that are like high energy Find a couple really low energy but faithful expositors to listen to also because then you'll develop your skills as an interpreter. Um, obviously, who you sit under in church is important when it comes to that as well. Acquire and use good Bible study tools. Welcome feedback graciously. If you get all defensive when somebody disagrees with you, they'll never disagree with you again. But it doesn't mean you're right. It means that you're not approachable. And read the Bible in community, which is what the discussion portion of this was all about. So we're going to close our weekend here together, trying to go through an example. This is a worksheet that you have uh, at the end of the um, presentation. I will make all the slides and handouts viewable online at the link that's at the bottom of your packets so that you guys can, can see everything. Um, but let's go through an example to see how a packet like this and these questions could help you when you're dealing with a difficult verse. You wouldn't use a packet like this for every verse in the Bible or you would die. All right? You would, out of, out of a whole chapter, a whole book, you'd identify a few verses you really want to study, and you could run it through something like this. So let's say we're in Philemon 1.6. Everyone turn to Philemon, you say it Philemon 6, actually, but it sounds better to say Philemon 1.6. <clears throat> Let me give you a spoiler alert. I... Uh, as I was developing this method for uh, interpreting the scriptures that I was teaching at the Bible college for my Bible study methods class, I was like, well, I'm going to run it through an example just to see how it works. And I ran Philemon 6 through the example, and I was confident in it because I had taught one particular interpretation to youth groups and churches probably three times over the last 10 years before that. And as I ran through this packet, I discovered I'm like 90% sure that it was wrong how I was teaching it. So I was like mortified at myself, but also really excited that the packet worked. So it was a weird moment for me. I was like hated myself, but loved this. So um, here's, here's what happened. I'm going to go through the packet, how it first happened um, with me. So you ask a question, are there any cultural differences of that time period versus my life? Now, if you're reading Philemon, obviously slavery is a huge cultural difference. It doesn't really apply to this verse, so I'll leave, I'll leave that alone, but there are great resources to deal with that about what's going on in the scriptures. You ask the question, should you interpret this passage literally or figuratively? Well, literally, um, nothing shows that figurative language is to be present here. Everything's really a straightforward, you know, de declarative statements here, so I don't think there's any figurative language here. Any genre-based advice? Well, this just falls within the Thanksgiving section of the epistles, and it seems pretty standard. 
So that question is not really going to help us too much. So I begin working my way through these other questions, and I come up with an interpretation. The verse says that the, let me read, the, uh, well, that, the fa- that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. And so I read that and said, okay, what's the interpretation? It seems like Paul is praying that they would be more successful in evangelism to the lost as they realize all they have in Christ. And I preached that three times in different sermons throughout the years. I'm like, oh, he really wants their evangelism to be effective. That's a God-honoring thing. As we realize all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, our evangelism becomes more effective. Easy peasy, right? That's a phrase that people still say, right? I think so. Alternate interpretation. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Let me do an alternate interpretation. Paul is saying that as they tell others specifically all about the spiritual blessings they have in Christ, that this method will be the most successful form of evangelism. So I don't really believe that, but I'm trying to think of what else could it mean as I read that whole verse. Maybe he thinks everything we have in Christ should be shared with people as like an evangelism technique, and that'll help them. I don't really believe that, so I'm choosing the first one there, and I'm going to check that through my nine questions. So I start looking through my nine questions. Is this the conscious thought of the author? Yes. I've trained myself to think that, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. That's just a slow, slow you down question. Does the context support your understanding of the passage? No. This is where my mind, instantly my mind is blown. Look at the verses before, and, it, and Paul is basically praying and focusing on love and faith in the body of Christ. Nothing really about the lost. And then afterwards, Paul is talking about their love, and his joy is in that the saints were refreshed. Doesn't really mention anything about the lost, and I stared at that a lot. I'm like, man, I guess it would be kind of weird that all of a sudden he would insert this little evangelism thing when the whole paragraph and prayer is about the body of Christ and not the lost. I'm like, well, that's interesting, but probably just a speed bump on the right of confirming that my understanding was correct. So I move on and I look it up in different translations, and I'm sure everything's better, except it messed me up again. I put yes there because it did help me to understand the author's intended meaning, but it began to shift my meaning. The ESV talks about, um, that it says this little phrase, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. That, that's kind of what it wants, wants to become effective, this full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. And you're like, okay. The NIV says, your partnership with us in the faith. And I'm like, well, partnership is different than sharing. Sharing, I think, evangelism. Partnership's a bit different. The NASB says the fellowship of your faith may become effective. I'm like, that has nothing to do with unbelievers. What in the world? And the NLT, put into action the generosity that comes from your faith. And again, that just sounds like something with believers. And so I start to pause and wonder, saying, wait a second. Did I get the word sharing wrong here? But maybe I'm right, so don't panic yet. Do any cross-references elsewhere support or contradict your interpretation? Um, Colossians 1.9, uh, it's a, similar, <coughs> it's a sim- similar prayer in structure and content, but that, that passage doesn't mention the loss at all. Ephesians 1 is just a good list of all that we have in Christ, in, you know, in the heavenly pr- places. That's just kind of a side note. It doesn't really help me. Did I look at Jesus and the plan of redemption? Yeah, it's kind of really all about that, so that one doesn't help me. But then as I look up key words in a Bible dictionary, that's where I begin to wave the white flag of defeat. The word sharing there, when I go on Blue Letter Bible, click on that number, the Strong's number there. It's the word koinonia. 
And I've been around the church enough to realize, oh no, that word means fellowship, not evangelism. I'm toast. And I paused in the study at this point and just started like apologizing to the Lord for all my sermons that were wrong in the past. And I was like, oh no, I taught like an evangelism study. This word means fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, right? It, it, it really seems to be a word that is isolated in its use towards unbelievers, not, I mean, towards believers, not unbelievers. And so I'm just feeling like, man, I'm wrong. I wonder what the right interpretation is. Does your interpretation fit within Christianity? Well, at least I'm not heretical, yes. Strength and weaknesses of your interpretation. Strength is I'm not heretical. That's not that good. And I've heard this preached before. I know I'm not the only one that preached it bad. I know I heard this from someone else, too. I'm not the only person that preached it bad. So those aren't really good strengths. Weaknesses, context, which is king. And the original word studies point to fellowship within the body of Christ, not evangelism. So it's over at this point. I look in commentaries, and I just am doubting everything at this point. Ellicott says, the knowledge of God's good towards us all binds us all to Christ in fellowship. Barnes says, the making of thy faith common to others, enabling others to partake of the fruits of it by good deeds. And Matthew Henry says, faith in Christ should unite saints more closely than any outward relation can unite those of the world. And I'm like, rats. I was completely wrong. And so what do I do? I don't have to go pick an alternate, alternate interpretation because I know that's wrong too. I just kind of discovered it along the way. So I rewrite what I've learned going through all these steps. And I think this is a lot closer. Paul desired them to live out their faith practically and generously among the believers in such a way that their fellowship would be strengthened. They would be able to do this as they dwelled on all the good things they had spiritually in Jesus. Right? It just makes you more generous to realize all God's given you and will give you as an inheritance. And so you can be generous as you practice your faith and be sacrificial with your time, your money, um, with those that are around you so they can all experience the fruit of, of that fellowship. So I talk about it with my friend at work. I'm probably moping a little bit as I'm doing this. Did they agree with your interpretation? Yeah, they agreed with my new interpretation because they probably knew it all along, um, just not my old one. And then they, didn't, they disagreed with it, so they didn't really say anything. How certain are you? Only 85% because I was so wrong for a decade. So you'd like to be like, oh, I figured it out. I'm 100% certain now. Not anymore. I'm kind of deflated and humble now. And I'm like, I don't know what's right in the world. I think Shannon still likes me. You know, I think, I don't know. I just kind of like, I don't know what to do at this point, right? And so this really helped me. It kind of, it kind of blew my mind that I would have a full reversal. And I don't think it was just like, oh yeah, today I have a full reversal. I'll go back to my old, my old view. I just don't see my old view anymore. I don't, I don't know. I studied it, right? Like I studied it when I taught it. I read it. But now that I've gone through something like this, I really feel completely disarmed on that view. And I feel like oh, it's at least heading in this direction. Um, I just got caught up on a translation. It's not a translation error. It's just that the word sharing to me, sharing of faith, reminded me of evangelism, and I ran with that rather than going deeper at that moment. And so this is how that tool can be used uh, to help you. And you just have to remember that our skill level varies, and we're growing, and we're maturing. You can't say, oh, well, I prayed about this view for two hours, and so I'm right. The Holy Spirit told me I'm right. I'm like, well, that's, thanks. That's impossible to say anything against. Oh, so I have to speak against God to have a different view than you now. That's, that's great, right? You can't say that, but prayer is important. And you got to point your finger at the passage and say, 
this is what it seems like the context is saying, the verse is saying, the cross-references are saying, and if, if somebody's willing to have that conversation with you, then I think we should have that conversation.